You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, welcome back, everybody, for our, our little um, discussion. We've had... Uh, Two kind of. Int- I'd just like to begin off the discussion um, by asking Claude. Um, oh, this seems to be the season for sort of bold um, <coughs> stories that affirm like uh, gay rights and gay marriage and gay parenthood. And I'm just wondering if you wrote that story uh, before you saw the movie. Uh, well, actually, I wrote the story in 2002, before the kids are all right came out. Uh, <laughs> yes, quite quite a bit. <laughs> I was just okay. Um, and what was what were those? What were the people? I never could quite figure out. They're zombies. They All right. Uh, they eat brains. They rose from the ground. Okay. Yeah. Right. They lose parts of their fingers when they gesture well, that was, emphatically. That was, that, was sort of, that was sort of a clue, but I wasn't uh, quite sure. And I, yeah. ca- I guess I kept looking for. Um, um, Anyway, for right. ectoplasm. Right, but, yeah, uh, no. <laughs> all right. And the other question I'd like to begin with, with, with Karen, is what, do you, what would you call that? I mean, it's not exactly a short story. It's not exactly historical fiction. It's sort of, it works. I mean, has anybody ever done anything quite like that that you know of? I think one of my very, very favorite stories in the world is Angela Carter's The Fall River Axe Murders, which um, is about the Lizzie Borden case and follows in um, great detail the day of the murders, sort of what, where everybody was, what everyone was doing, a uh, lot of information about the family, and, uh, and just an incredibly chilling last line. And I, I have the same question. I read it fairly often because I do love it. And I, and I wonder why I believe it's a short story when I also believe that it's a carefully researched and very accurate account. But I do, I, it, it works on me like a short story. So no, it works, it works in general like a short story. But uh, I wonder what, like you, I wonder what the difference is. I mean, basically, you're just selecting Yes. And arranging. Yes. And and uh, and yet there's something in the and throwing in a ghost here or there. Yeah, but that's just so it can get published in FNSF, right? <laughs> um, but structurally, I, I guess it has to do with the the voice, the narrative. Yeah, it's a serious question. I mean, there's something about it that makes it a that makes it fiction and not a a real interesting t- uh, nonfiction article about. This interesting family. There's something. It's just a question I'm sort of raising in general, but it's curious to know what it is because you, you know you can talk about people talk about uh, fantasy and science fiction. What's the difference and yada yada, and it it really is kind of in the sound of it, and um, and there's something in the sound of that that makes it fiction. But I'm not quite sure what it is, and clearly you haven't thought about it. I you know it's not that I haven't thought about it. It's that. I feel this is somebody else's job to tell me yeah. what I've written. That I, I'm not, I'm not compelled to do that. And, and you're so right I've about always that. Always been you very know, grateful. We shouldn't worry about for that. For that stuff. Um, well. I will say, you know, one of the r- things that I had in mind um, several years ago, I wrote a story about Einstein in which um, right. I took his Lisa. work, Lisserl, and um, and tried to sort of uh, use the. Um, you know, the idea of relativity and of um, what that does to time streams in order to talk about his personal life. And I was trying to do something similar since Edwin's personal life is Hamlet um, and the the theater, but Hamlet in particular. And the ghosts are not there to get into FNSF. They're there because it's Hamlet. It's Hamlet. And there are ghosts. Um, That makes sense. Well, it's it's interesting. Talking about tone, I mean, your story to me did not exactly have the tone of a zombie story 
Well, no, it, uh, I um, maybe that's what threw me off. Well, yeah, well, I modeled it like a sitcom. It's got the it's got the the pacing and structure of, of a sitcom. What does that mean? Well, it means we, you've got you know you've got the suburban family, and there's an element that. There's, a, there's the problem of the week. Raymond is depressed. Oh, oh. What are we going to do because Raymond is depressed? So they find the problem. They have all the little adventures and, it, and, and, and there's all the amusing things. And then there's a bit of a, of a, of a, a, a hyper action scene near the end. And then there's the conclusion where the status quo comes back, where it's just the two of them. And, and they love each other again. And, and everything will continue in, in suburbia just as it always does. Okay. All right. That works for me. <laughs> you say but, but but with gay zombies. Yes. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> and when you say status quo, you sound like that's a bad thing. Uh yeah. <laughs> All right. I mean, uh, I mean, I like. I think of art as um, like all art is like you know is. Um, is iconoclastic by nature, and it should be. All right, is that yeah. true? I don't know. I'll throw that out to everybody yeah. else. Maybe. Well, well I that's know. what I. That's right. what I aspire to, at least. Yeah. Well, let's come back to that. Did anybody have any particular question? Yeah, Cliff. Very serious question for both of the writers. Okay. Louder. I have a very serious question for both of the writers. If on that tragic night uh, at the Ford Theater. President Lincoln was assassinated. If at right before that, the theater had been attacked by a ton of zombies, <laughs> do you think that John Wilkes would have used his gun instead of assassinating the president to fight off the zombies and save people, or do you think he would have gone through with it? That's, That's an excellent question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> uh, I well, think. That the historical record is extremely porous <laughs> and that we cannot know for sure that there were not zombies all over Ford's theater. Well, uh, I'm Canadian, so I don't care. All right, all right, I guess so. All right. Well, yeah. Uh, Stephen. I want to make a comment and ask a question. Uh, first of all, I, I think that you have as much trust in your audience as any great writer I've ever read. Thank and you. I always admire that very much. I think you deserve that trust. Well, I think so, too. <laughs> Seriously, I, I think that that's hard to do. I, I, I'm, I say that because I think that there's a lot that you, I don't know consciously or not, but choose not to say because you, you trust your readers. You know what I mean? You, you, won't, you don't stop and go, maybe I better elucidate here or whatever. And it, I think that impels your, your stories and your flavor. I mean, to me, that that's, I value that very highly in the writers I, I like best. And, and I always appreciate it. Thank you. Huh. I mean, for all I know, you never even consider it. But no, I think about it a lot. I think about, you know, what I imagine the reader understands at certain points in the story, what I want them to know, what I don't want them to know. Um, I think I, I, the, I kind of think of it in my head in terms of a sort of negative space that I'm going to put what I need in the story, but I'm also going to pay a lot of attention to what I don't put in. And I, you know, I think that um, that I'm often asked if I write science fiction or if I believe that I write science fiction. And I think my honest answer is, first of all, as I said, not my you know not my job to determine. But I do think that I'm almost always writing for the kind of reader I think the science fiction reader is. Um, and I think of the science fiction reader as somebody who who does like to work on the text a bit and, and it enjoys a very active involvement in the story and enjoys figuring things out and does not mind being mystified and puzzled yeah, for a while, sometimes not as long as I like to mystify and puzzle. Where I don't say the word zombie ever. Yeah. Until you start talking about the night of the comet. Yeah, yeah, right. Then it's the whole well, mm -hmm. yeah, you're well, trying to make me feel stupid, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> my, my question here is, is actually not related to that. I'm, uh, um, you know, I've read a bunch of your stuff, and I find it interesting that, that something that's 
me anyway, seems to interest you that you talk about a lot are people who sort of whose lives are touched by or, or who are in some way having to live in the shadow of some something larger than them, be it a person or a historical event. And you don't actually write about the event. You want to know about like like Tonto at forty, you know. I think about that or Sarah Canary, these people who have been sort of relegated to the to the side to the wings of history or of narrative or of society's attention. And I, I wonder I, I just wonder if you have anything to say about that. I, I it's one of the things I like about your work. Thank you. I think that um, that I'm very conscious in my own life. I'm very conscious of a sort of um, I, I call it an aquarium life. I live in a small world that's set in a larger world, and and in the small world, which is my personal life, which is all the people that I actually know, the places that I actually go, you know, the the landscapes I actually walk or drive over. Everything kind of makes sense. Um, uh, people may behave irrationally or inexplicably, but um, I do not feel that world as an irrational and inexplicable place. But you pan out <laughs> to the world where, you know, there's a, a sea of trash the size of Texas floating in the Pacific Ocean, and um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is the governor of California, and <laughs> I could go on and on. The woman running for Congress in Delaware is releasing an ad assuring us that she is not a witch. And <laughs> Elvis is continually being cited, um, or angels, or ghosts, or, you know. <laughs> you know, that world is inexplicable to me. And, um, and I do not believe that I will ever, I, I do not believe that I'm capable of understanding that world. And when you write a story or a book, you're, you're asserting a certain um, competence, you know, a certain capability that I, that in the real world I, I'm not sure that I actually have. So I'm, I'm always very conscious that I'm writing a small story, but that it takes place in a larger world. And I usually am trying in some way to invoke the inexplicable in, um, sometimes by being inexplicable myself. Do you find that the historical context of known facts sort of frees you up to extrapolate and get into the head of the person? I don't believe a thing that I read, so. <laughs> <laughs> we, we would have to have a discussion about the words known fact before we could proceed. Well, is it just grist for the mill? Yes. Well, I'm just wondering, it is um, the thing about... Um, the people observing great events from a distance, and and uh, uh, I'm wondering. I mean, certainly Karen does that, but I also think that's a not maybe the major technique of fiction, but one of the seems to be one of the hallmarks of modernist fiction in a way is is to pull back and to uh, to pull away a little bit. I don't know. Um, it just seems like that to me. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. I just finished um, Wolf, reading Wolf Hall. Did you ah, read Wolf Hall? I just Hall? finished Wolf Hall, yeah. yes. Well, you never go to Wolf Hall, do you? <laughs> no. But it's... Um, but it's, a, it's big events. It's big events, um, but it's also apparently the first in uh, a longer work. So I expect we are going to get to Wolf Hall eventually, probably in some book that's not entitled Wolf Hall. We will get uh -huh. to Wolf Hall. What, what about yourself? Do you deal with historical fiction at all? or uh, Not really, not much. Uh, there's one story in the book that does tie in a little bit with World War II, okay, where um, there's, a, there's a key scene that's, uh, that's a battle that happened. Uh, but uh, What's the battle? Uh, I, I don't remember. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, I mean, I researched it for the story because I, cause, like, I needed it. Um, it's the, um, uh, here I am. Uh, it's uh, the 19th of August, 1942, Canadian forces spearheaded an attack on Dieppe. Um, 
and uh, so I've right. got some details about uh, like about that. I usually uh, my uh, my stuff is ten tends to be in these in these realities that are just <coughs> a little askew from where we are, where I don't explain anything because uh, I hate explaining anything, and um, and I and you know and I and but it's not usually set. <coughs> It, it feels familiar, <coughs> but I always throw in a, a few things, and, and, I, and I tend to not uh, relate to our, to our, our history. It's like, it's, it's <coughs> elsewhere. Like, it's urban, there's the same technology, there's, the same, there's a lot of the same stuff, but there's always a little something askew, yeah. Have you seen that movie, um, <coughs> Never Let Me Go, that has has been out recently. No, it's um, your girl. Yeah. Did you see it? I did, yes. It's no. quite... Um, I don't it's think got so. got panned. Yeah, no, I didn't see it. Oh, oh, right. Oh, oh, you mean... Uh, don't... Uh, did I get the title wrong? Yeah, it's... It's... No, let no. me in. The no, American that's title that's a different is one. That's a different one. No. <laughs> yes. Are you talking about uh, the vampire film? No, okay. I'm not oh. talking about the vampire film. Okay. Uh, um, it ju just what you said made me think of that. It's right. um, it it's been out a month or so, I think. Uh, um, it it begins by um, with some explanation on screen that says in 1952 there was a big medical breakthrough, and by 1978 or something, people um, were living to uh, to be a hundred years old. Oh, and then wow. it's set I in England, and you know everything looks pretty much the same but you What's the title again? Ne Never let me go. Okay, I'm I'm, I'm going to look that up. There's a book. Okay. Yes, yeah, Isha Isha girl. Yes. Uh, he wrote yes. Um, yeah. Read the book. Remains um, the day. Remains the day and a couple of others. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, and you thought it worked. I did. You know, I thought um, again if you've read any science fiction at all, you know exactly what is going to what what the backstory is, you know what's going to happen. There are no real surprises in it, but it's done. It's beautifully, beautifully done. Why did they give that away at the beginning? Because it was they needed it. The breakthrough. Um, I, I, I guess, guess at some point you're going to need that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it at least lets you know that although the world you're looking at appears to be the world that so you right live in, yeah, it is actually you know, not right. But most science fiction films always start with that. That in another galaxy, the, far, that far prelude away. that makes you go, you're not in the real world, which I which always irritates me. It's like let the story tell me in time. Let me be surprised by the fact that oh look at that, and and you know, and, and it always irks me. It's always like don't don't tell me. <laughs> let me find out. You know. About trust. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's advice or condemnation. You know, I, I don't think it's it's the difference between genre and mainstream. I think it's a, it's a, it's a difference between um, uh, what you what you want to accomplish with writing because there there are mainstream writers who are who are who are more elliptical and uh, and others were really direct and there are genre writers like 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 Purnell. Who are more direct? They will explain everything. Whereas there, there are others who don't. I think. Jerry Purnell's not subtle. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. Uh, so, so I, I don't think it's genre and mainstream. I think it's another division entirely. And like Karen said, it's not up to us to, to, to say what, what that division is. Sure, it is up to us. That's, uh, no, otherwise, we'll all go, go home. What? Yeah. No, I, I hate exposition. I do everything to avoid it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I could relate to what people are saying about trusting your audience and what Karen said about science fiction readers, because I think the thing you br – uh, a science – the one, one – we always complain about science fiction, right? But the one great advantage you have is a, a reader readership that are like problem solvers. They yes. – they, are looking they're always looking for well what's the what's the real deal right and uh people if you go to a reading of a mainstream writer or stuff it doesn't exactly work that way they're listening for the music or the characters or this and that and the other and not 
they're not coming at it with a uh, from a problem-solving perspective. Right. And this, uh, to me, I just did a reading for Litquake, where I uh, was in a non-science fiction type group, and nobody knew who I was, and I read a story, and it was blank. It was like nobody got it. And it wasn't because it was a terrible story. It was just because they, it's not, it, it was, the venue was wrong. They yeah. were not, I actually they had, were not going to figure it out. Yeah. They didn't want to think about it that way. I had the same experience shortly after the book came out last year. I was invited in Montreal to this, uh, to this reading series called the Yellow Door series. But it's always mainstream. I was just invited because in Montreal I'm, kind of well-known, so they just asked me, like, asked me to go. So what I did, because you really don't have uh, much time, I read teasers from almost all the stories, and including some what I thought were really funny ones. And, you know, and, like, I got, like, a blank audience, like, n n not a reaction, because they had no clue. It was, it was beyond sometimes, what they could grasp. Sometimes it's helpful to, in your introduction to explain that what you're going to be reading is very funny. Right. <laughs> that helps quite a bit. Yeah, it does. Yeah, people don't often. That, yeah. That's a hard one too. Yeah. Well, isn't that what a sitcom does? They laugh. They have. They have the laugh right. track. Tell you yeah. 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 And that's uh, you know, as a as a writer, you don't always get that. Mm. I, you know, sort of along those same lines. One of the things that I um, was so pleased with when I started telling people in the science fiction community that I was writing the Jane Austen Book Club was how many science fiction writers loved Jane Austen, which I had not known, but also to listen to them talk about, about her and about her books uh, made me understand that they read her like she's a science fiction writer. And it, it's what a very, well, you know, that you're, that you're, that it's a, uh, um, you know, that it's a, a place and time that you don't know the rules to, and you don't always know the language, but you're gonna figure it out. You're, you're reading the book to sort of figure out where where this alternate universe that where these books take place are. Yeah, that's uh, I've heard uh, Stan Robinson talks about historicals that way, uh, and he's good friends with Cecilia Holland, who's a, a very fine. Historical. We all love Cecilia. Yeah, and uh, and it's true. You have to. You can't just send people out in the yard. You have to explain what else is in the yard and and how you get there and all that kind of stuff. No, it's true. I never thought of that with Jane Austen, though, because I guess because she's been around. Jane Austen seems awfully familiar. It's like you. Um, well, I, you know, I began to wonder as I talked to more people why my experience of her was different, and um, that she did seem, you know, very familiar to me. And uh, you know, I figured out eventually that it was high school. It was. It was just <laughs> you know, all of the ways in which women were supposed to behave are the ways in which women of my age were told they were supposed to behave when we were in high school. Right. Guys, too. <laughs> Although they don't really do much behaving in Jane Austen. They just act silly. But that's but really I all guys have to do. graduated high school in 1968, <laughs> and then it was no longer a Jane Austen world. <laughs> Boy, yeah. I want to give you the opportunity to read for a second. The what? Are you finally sick of, like, the yada yada book club now? And every, I mean, every month I go to the bookstore, and there's... You know, the, the, the Cthulhu Book Club. I mean, there's something, you know what I mean? There's something I do. called the Yaya Sisterhood of Book Clubs. I do. I, I can only apologize. <laughs> All I can do is apologize. I no, just, I, I, just wonder, I just wonder how that hits you. Do you walk into Barnes & Noble and shake your head, or do you laugh, or...? or I'm... Ask for royalties. <laughs> <laughs> that would work. I find it... I, I just find it astonishing, yeah. I think... Um, Everybody has figured out what an easy format that is, you know, the the bridge club of Madison County, the <laughs> whatever. Well, remember... It feels to a sense of having a bunch of people, everybody's so alienated, you know, and having a bunch of people get together to talk. That's what Oprah is, isn't she? Right? She's a window on this world of people that you don't know, but you feel like you do. Yeah. One of my favorite, very favorite introductions when I was 
touring with that book was somebody who inadvertently introduced me as the author of the Jane Austen Fight Club. <laughs> which, uh, now, that, now, that would be a great book. That's what I thought. But now, but now it is uh, on a YouTube video, and yeah. it's, it's oh, just it fantastic. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. It is so uh, funny. Wow. Well, that's great. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So what's your new book? Uh, you know, I, I, I've been working on it for so long. I've written books in the interim. So um, I feel that every time I'm asked this question that you probably will recognize my answer because I probably gave it 10 years ago or 15 years ago. But it's got a chimp in it. It's a book with a chimp in it. Ah, okay. It's a chimp novel. An another chimp and, novel. And again, everybody and their aunt is writing chimp novels, so I needed to do it 15 years ago when I meant to. Well, Ted Chang did a kind of a cool one. Uh, didn't did he, he do that? Yeah. Uh, it's not a novel. He's never written a novel. But What's, uh, what's Ted Chang's chimp book? I'm trying to think. Of, it was a long, short story I heard him read. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Was, uh, was it fairly recent? Cause I thought a couple years. I about I, a year, something like that. I try to keep up with Ted Chang. Anyway, interesting. So who do you read? Well, my favorite author is J.G. Ballard. Like, I just, you know. Um, but uh, aside from that, like, who I read currently? For fun. For fun. Uh, well, J.G. Ballard. <laughs> um, uh, you know, but um, uh, I like Christopher Moore's early novels quite a bit, but I find he's kind of lost the touch a little bit of late. Um, uh, I I love Jeff Ryman's stuff. Um, uh, yeah. Um, There's Jeff back there. No. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, I know Jeff. That's not Jeff. Uh, and uh, I like Paul DeFilippo often, like, you know, James Morrow. Um, uh, uh, so you read, current, you read current science fiction? Well, actually, I barely read anymore except to review. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. He's a reviewer, a book reviewer, too, yeah. this guy. Yeah, I'd yeah. forgotten that. Huh. And mostly in the field? Yes. Uh, I've got a, a column for the paper in Montreal called uh, Fantastic Fiction. Okay. Yeah. So stuff that's not fantastic doesn't get reviewed, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> All right, cool. All right. And what do you read when you're, when you're writing a novel? I used to have this thing that when I was writing a novel, I only read Robert Louis Stevenson because I'd already read it and the prose was right. And it didn't, and then I, I, that was sort of a pose. I gave it up years ago. But uh, do you do anything like that? I think that I'm um, involuntarily very imitative of voice and rhythm and, and that I, I feel that I pick up in my own work, the, the the rhythms of things that I'm reading. So I'm just really careful to read really, really good stuff when I'm writing a book. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say, I, I thought you were gonna say I'm careful to read stuff that's not very good, so I won't be no. plagiarizing. No, no. <laughs> and I have discovered that, you know, just um, free reading is a absolutely critical part of my writing process that I can't write if I'm not reading. And I have to be reading kind of at random and things that I want that you know reviewing books that would that would not work for me that would be work right. so like uh, last reading. week so like last week uh, I'm reading a collection of short stories by um, Kate Bradley uh, The Mechanism of Falling I just finished Wolf Hall I read um, a book that I meant to read many years ago um, by Elizabeth McCracken called uh Niagara Falls all over again, which I just thought was fantastic. I think she's fantastic. Never heard um, of her. Who are, are these like uh, that dread term, mid-list women writers? Uh, I don't know what you mean by that term, sir. <laughs> 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 I th you know, we, um, I'm on a chat list with women writers in the Bay Area, and one of the things we have been talking about recently is the kind of the idea of the book club book, not not in the way that Stephen was talking about, the the you know the book that the women's book clubs really embrace, and um, you know you can make a list of of some of them, and and what and if if that defined middle brow and what middle brow means, and if they all have some sort of um, 
uplifting endings or, you know, not, not necessarily happy endings, but not unhappy endings either. P things kind of being resolved. And so what did you decide? Well, we didn't decide. We agreed to disagree in the end, I guess. So what did you but think? I, I, when I sort of went through the list in my head of the books that seemed to me have been very, very popular with book clubs, it did seem to me that most of them ended in some sort of um, resolved and, and, you know, possibly bittersweet, but emphasis on the sweet way. What about you? Uh, what's the question? <laughs> the, uh, the question is, in the last week or so. Oh, but you ha you're a viewer. You have to read stuff. Right. Well, I, actually, the last good book I read, it, it's actually for my column this month, uh, is uh, from uh, a newish British author called Mark Hodder. And it was The, the Strange Case of spring Jack. And, um, it, I mean, it, it, it cashes in a little bit on the whole steampunk thing, but it is a very bizarre alternate history that is filled with moments of delirious invention. And, I, and I'm easily bored, and I was just fascinated from beginning to end. It was like truly a surprise. Like it, it, it captivated me more than anything I, I, I had read in months. So, you know, I was quite happy to read that. Yes, it's a pirate book here in North America, but yeah. Oh, interesting. But it was published in the UK first. I can't remember uh, who from, but yeah. All right. Comments or questions? We have two people here we don't get all the time. Jeremiah. Uh, I have a question about the performance art. You both, you, you were doing a sitcom in your story that you read earlier, and you were doing Well, for one thing, I always approach a, a, a reading as a performance, and, I, and I'm very careful to think of it as a performance, not as a, a reading. I think when, you know, when, when people give their time to come and, and hear us read, the least we can do is, even if we don't read something that, that's funny, but you know, no matter what we, what we read, we, that we actually give a performance, that we learn to read to give a performance. And I think I always approach it like that. And to me, that's very important. But it does not affect how I write. I mean, that I will choose what I read based on what I think will make a, a better performance. Uh, like one of my more recent stories uh, was, in a, was in a vampire anthology, and it's a little wry, but it's mostly very dark. And, um, and, but it's a great performance. It, it's a piece that's really good to perform, so it's become part of, of kind of my standard set, if I may say so, when I choose something to read and and I have maybe six or seven stories out of like the th the 30 or something that I've got that are the ones that I know are the ones to read in in public you know I guess I would say the same thing that um, that I don't think it impacts what I write at all uh, and and only sort of comes into play when I'm trying to decide what I'll read on a particular night but I also I think when I first began um, to write, when I first began to publish, um, it had not been made clear to me that public performance was part of <laughs> what I would be doing. I sort of imagined I would be, you know, sitting by myself with the door shut in the study, entertaining myself um, and not worrying a whole lot whether anybody else was going to be entertained. And it was very hard for me initially. I think a lot of the kind of people who are drawn to writing are not necessarily the kind of people who are drawn to standing up in front of groups of people and talking. So um, I I had to get over that, and I did. You know, it's been many years since I was nervous in front of an audience, but it used to be very very hard. I will say one more thing about that: is what I said is true of my 
fiction fiction. But what I write for Lost Miz is written for performance. So when I write those, even though they're also on the web and and you can read them, they are written as as pieces that I know I will read and perform. And that's the only part of my writing that I constantly think of of performance. Okay, it's lostmiz.net. At the table outside, there are bookmarks with like the address, and and it's also in the back of the book. There's like you know if you get the book, it's there. So he's French. Lost Miz sounds like a, a sitcom yeah. about I, I missing people. Yeah. he meant Miz. lost myths. Yeah, I yeah. find THS <laughs> is a really tongue, is a real tongue twister. Were you Francophiles, right? Well. I have no problem with TH in, like, <laughs> in general, but THS is like. It's funny. I, I, in terms of reading, um, I also think um, there's a there's a sort of a, a to me. A, I mean, I'm pretty old, and in the in the 50s and 60s, the, the convention of reading is that you don't stand between the audience and the text, so you read very flat very dry, very sort of academic. And I think that's, uh, that's what I tend to do. And I, th and I think it's just, that's, um, I, I've got nothing against performance or, or readers who are, I mean like Crowley, if you ever watch Crowley read or. Uh, or, you know. or Jeff Ryman. I don't know if you've ever seen Jeff, but he really performs. He's an entertainer, yeah. I, yeah. I, I can I can understand people doing that, but it, to me it's a different school than the one I grew up in. Oh. Could both of huh? you both of you deal with myth? Could you talk about it? Uh, how I mean, what were the first myths each of you read? I mean, for me it was Bullfinch, but I don't know. It was what? Bullfinch's myth. Yeah, yeah. Myth? Oh. Yeah. Well, me I think it started um, actually in school. Uh, when they gave me work to do in class, I always I finished it in like five minutes. And, you know, and so I had like 25 or t 20 minutes where I was like not, not knowing what to do. So I got into the habit with the teacher's permission to hand in my thing immediately and then go in the back of the room where there was a dictionary. Now, French dictionaries, um, the the La Rousse is split in two, where the the first half are um, you know nouns and verbs and adjectives and all and all that stuff, and the second half are the are the proper nouns. So it's places, gods, people, like you know, etc. Oh. And 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 I started to read the second half, and then you know, and I started around the A's, and the first thing that really got my attention was. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his name in, in English. Apis, Apis, the Egyptian bull god. And, and then the way it's, the dictionary was uh, set up, it always referred you to an, another entry that was that, you know, so, that, so then I started to just read all these entries about myth that cross-referenced e e each other, and it grew into an obsession that has never left. Oh. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, it, it was proto Wikipedia, you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Did, do you? I don't. Uh, a lot of your stories based on myths. Um. I don't know. If Rick says they are, then Rick is right. Rick is never wrong. So. What? Well, how about it, Rick? I don't know. I don't. I don't know about myths. I was reading here. Her stories are about hope and despair, brutality and kindness. There's nothing about myths here. So I don't, you hope, know. despair, and 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 brutality. That's like all fiction. No, <laughs> that's, yeah, what, that's what we're all about. Also kindness. Yeah. You know. I certainly did read a lot of those myths when I was a child, yeah. and you know the very first, my very first encounter was just my dad taking me out in the backyard and showing me the stars and telling me different stories. And I could never, 
I, you know, I could never see the figures in the stars. I, he would be pointing, and I would. I have never been able to either. They're not there. That's why. (laughs) Did not understand how abstract they were. (laughs) I kept trying to find them, but I liked the stories, and um, and we had a a book um, for children of Greek myths and legends that I liked a great deal. And then I think in the back there were Norse. I remember um, Loki and liking those trickster sorts of things hmm. a great deal and mary poppins which seems to me very mythic also wendy i was thinking when he's talking about this uh, goddess this erotic goddess that came down through the window i kept thinking about uh, wendy's bedroom with right peter uh, pan with peter pan right yeah that's become sort of a myth well i do try to work with like like even though i make shit up what i what I try is I try to use a template and go, oh, look, why don't I tweak this template into a way that we haven't thought before? But I, but, but I try to use a template that will feel a mythic to start with, you know, yeah. It's like using Greek names and stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cliff, you hadn't said anything interesting in a while. <laughs> Well, if our... The internet is over. Right. Well, the the big question I raised, we haven't really answered, uh, which I, I also, th- I think is kind of interesting, the, the question of how, how you turn a sort of a historical feature article into a um, um, short story, emotionally. And... Um, um, and you're right, it's not your responsibility to come up with that. But all of us are readers, even of our own work, and we think, wow, that's kind of interesting, you know. How did that actually work? It sure worked well for me. Um, Thank you. And Claude, Claude, I want to thank you. Thank you. For the, uh, the, the dark version of The Kids Are All Right. <laughs> and, uh, um, nobody's the got version any. in which the kids are not all right. <laughs> The kids taste all right. (laughs) (laughs) Cliff, you had your chance. Yeah. (laughs) 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 You had a chance. Elizabeth had something. Elizabeth. Yes. Um, I'm not quite In the book of what? In my book, the first story in right. my book. It's about like this troubled teen that gets sent to one of those like centers that's supposed to straighten them out and turns out to be some sort of probably alien mind tapping thing, but it's never explicitly said because it's Karen. <laughs> and it's the end. What kind of like frustrated me when it ends is that like. Yeah, just like remembering being a teenager and feeling so, so out, like feeling that outrage and wanting that vindication for like your parents to go, oh, you were right all along. <laughs> you were, of course, a wonderful child and we should have listened to you and just that whole vindication, like you wanted, you wanted the parents, I, I kind of wanted the parents to find out like what a horrible thing they left their child to, but of course, you know, get that and I understand like you know that it really wouldn't have worked in the story but it's still there's still that part of me that wants that even though i know it would have detracted from the work and i guess i'm trying to ask where you feel the line is between a good ending and just frustrating the hell out of your audience on purpose i think why have you never tried a good ending yeah (laughs) (laughs) i think that um if you feel that i have um frustrated the hell out of my audience on purpose that you have a large company of supporters around you as far as I can tell. I don't think that I said that I don't respond to the bittersweet endings. I was I was trying to 
Um, the, the, the original conversation came up because of the Jonathan Franzen book and because of the whole to-do last time with Oprah and, um, and the idea that an Oprah book was middle brow. And we were just trying to figure out what that word meant, what, what the word middle brow meant. Uh, didn't, didn't get very far, but um, struggled with it for a bit. I feel, um, I, you know, I, um, I, like, I like an ending that's open. I like an ending in general where you have a sense of the story probably continuing past the point at which you have stopped it. And, um, and I, you know, I, I, um, I, don't like, I don't like the ending where everything is understood. As I said, I'm always trying to sort of evoke the inexplicable along with explaining what I can explain. But I can assure you, um, first of all, that her parents within a few days are going to show up and find her, and it's, that's going to be a whole other story. No apologize. Won't be right? good. <laughs> and that, um, secondly, that you were a wonderful child and that your parents are very, very sorry for ever having <laughs> doubted you. <laughs> Well, I read that wrong, actually. It says hope and despair, brutality, <laughs> kindness, and revenge. And I didn't see that part. So that's... Boyette. Actually, on a related note, I'd like to ask both of you if you're okay with your readership is sometimes uncomfortable with ambiguity, because it seems like both of you find a lot of power in ambiguity. Uh, I don't care. No, um, uh, uh, I mean... Um, I mean, I know what I'm setting out to do, and um, I tend to act, I, I tend to end on a physical action, or at the moment of, of, of just before a decision is taken. Um, the story I just read isn't really that typical of, of what I do, because I, I structured it like a sitcom. Right. So I have a little more Conventional of, like, right. like, you know, but I, but I tend to end in a place where I leave it to the audience to kind of figure out where it's going to go from there. But I, because for me, the conclusion is when the character has, has had the arc. And then, and then after that, it's blather. Like, I know, like, like I'm gone. Like, you know, it's over. Uh, well, sort of, you know, but, but it's just that at the moment when there is nothing to resolve for the character anymore, then there's, there's nowhere else to go. And, and, and I would prefer to leave the space there for readers to, to engage and wonder instead of just telling them something, which seems like a horribly boring way to go about things. Anyway, yeah. I like that answer. I'll just stick with that answer. <laughs> the guy in the red shirt. <laughs> I'm going to rope you into this too, Terry. Um, so, all three of you, uh, on some level, in your in your the stories we heard tonight, uh, and then in Terry's like Billy's book, you exploit children in a way. Uh, there's Scott, <laughs> and then there's the ghost of the, that Edwin sees as a boy, and 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 there's something. It strikes me that there's something uh, akin to the childhood experience of not knowing what the hell is going on in this weird adult world and reading the science fiction, as we were discussing earlier, where the reader puts together a, uh, a world the way a child kind of puts together a world while they're reading, uh, with maybe not quite this sense of immediate peril that you see all as a kid trying to figure it out. But do you, when you're, when you're writing and you're, you're choosing what to put and what not to put and what to explain to the reader and what not to explain to the reader in an order, like you were talking about not having exposition, um, and you're certainly, with the Billy's book, you're certainly working childhood experience. Um, do, you, do you think about, like, oh, well, the reader's not old enough yet to, to be told this, this part in the story, or, or how do you structure, like, what you want to convey to them so that their experience of the sort of the childhood of growing up in the world of your story isn't, is or is not deliberately? Well, it's a tough, 
act. It's, I mean, it is a balancing act, and it's tough. Uh, I know that my earliest stories, I tended to um, over-explain a little bit. For me, uh, other people told me I was still really ambiguous, but <laughs> but I thought that I that in hindsight I look at them and and I didn't trust the audience enough, and um, but it's really tough because it's this it's this give and take of of implication and revelation, and you and and it's and I. And I think it's simply intuitive. I don't think there's a formula. I don't think any writer or few writers will actually think about it like, oh, this I can say, this I must say. I think it's a question of how it feels. And as you go along, your guesses get better. Yeah, don't just say that'll do for me, please. <laughs> well, I think you should answer the question. It was directed at you as much as us. Well, it was such a, a clarion, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like my yeah. question. You said, you know, <laughs> um, question. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, to me, the, all that's determined by the, the story, not by my... Um, I don't have an overall plan, but the story itself... To me, a story is the controlled release of information. And so you're... Uh, you're you're, and the story determines kind of how you do it. And um, so I write uh, kids' stories. Uh, they're very um, beloved. And I also write <laughs> stuff for adults. Uh, but actually, I don't write for kids. So I only write for uh, uh, people who went to Clarion in general <laughs> and who <laughs> kind of get it. So I don't really think about That's these things. Your books, Terry, so yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> Huge audience. Yes, <laughs> I, know. I know. Yeah, they get a lot of freebies. <laughs> I think in general that the thing that I, I like the best as a reader is to be surprised. I don't like reading something where I'm never surprised. And, um, and so that's generally what I'm trying to provide when I write something. I, I, I want to take you somewhere um, and, you know, in the best possible world, you'll feel satisfied with where I've taken you, but it won't be where you expect it to be taken. That's what I'm trying to do. And if I have to choose between one or the other, I'd rather leave you dissatisfied and surprised than unsurprised and satisfied. Which is why you don't get to jump up on Oprah's couch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys shut up and let's go home. Um, thanks very much for coming. Uh, come Thank in. you. Steve Boyette and some guy we've never even heard of will be here next in November. He writes about whales and shit. You're going to love it. Uh, You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.